For the next three episodes, we're doing something very special. We're taking the best leadership episodes from the most popular past guests and distilling them down to 10-minute segments to turbocharge your leadership. If you want even more 10-minute condensed leadership episodes, you can subscribe to Joel Beasley Tech Titans in your podcast app. Tahir from Salesforce joins us in this episode to share his best advice on growing as a security professional. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Tech Titans. Our audience is comprised of, you know, people who want to grow in their technical career. Maybe they just got pushed into first time management. And then that's like Mm -hmm. one section. The other section is like VP of engineering types who want to become into the C-suite. And then the last one is the C-suite wanting to listen to their peers. There's security professionals all the way up and down that stack. Mm -hmm. Um, So in general... Uh, if they're, if a security professional, executive, technologist type person is looking to improve and grow at their their career path in security, who should they be reading? What type of activity should they be performing? The security profession, honestly, the best thing is to participate in, in the security groups. There's a number of circles that, you know, of, of security, CISOs and security professionals that meet in different places under different umbrellas like all over the world. It is it is really important to get the knowledge firsthand from someone who's actually doing these things. It's hard to read a book today about what should a CISO do. And the reason is six months from now we will in fact change. That that the threats are changing, the world is actually changing. Uh, we get to face things that we did not anticipate two years ago. So belonging to these groups in my opinion, is probably the most important thing to do. Be up to date on things. It's a very, very fast moving part of the of the technology world, actually. From a leadership perspective and you know, the sense of growing your career, when you founded those companies, what was some of the lessons that you learned from a leadership perspective that's helped you be a better leader today? People are the most important assets any organization has. That's what you learn very quickly. There is a, there's a word in technology that we always refer to, which is disagree but commit. So that's actually really important. You cannot get 10 people in one room and expect they're going to agree because people just don't have the same opinion about anything. But you have to commit. So after we've disagreed, a decision was made. Everybody in an organization needs to go after the same goal. If there are people trying to serve their own personal business, you know, uh, businesses or their own personal things, um, that actually destroys organizations. And I have seen that firsthand. So it's it's the team that is the most important thing. Leaders of, of small, medium, and large organizations all learn this. Uh, be transparent with people. You know, th- this is this is the, the 21st century. It's not 1950 anymore. So the old style management is doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, be transparent, be open, but make a firm decision and demand that people actually follow the decision. You can have your opinion, you can state things, but, but people do have to follow the decision when the decision is in fact made. What is the security thing, for lack of a better term, that all businesses should be thinking about? Because there's so many different areas to focus. There's so many different security companies selling different nightmares. What's like the one thing that people 
should at least make sure they have a like as a basic base covered. This is a, a, an involved question. You're looking for a single answer, so I'm going to answer it in a different way if you don't mind. Perfect, yeah. So there are certain things that you have to do yourself as a business. And number one is understanding what the business actually is, who the customers are and what the relationships look like and what do you actually care about. Because whoever is going to attack is going to attack something that you care about, that has something of value, right? Because that's why businesses exist. Every business needs to understand what they have that people would like to steal or destroy or whatever. We are, in fact, all connected today. If you look at attacks and how attacks have been successful, 90-some plus percent of the successful breaches were because somebody used the bad password. It's, It's so silly. You know, we're in 2022 now. We're 25 plus years in this journey. Uh, and people still use passwords that I can guess sitting here in about two minutes. So that is actually the number one attack vector. It's kind of simple. So, you know, Salesforce went out a couple of years back and said, hey, all Salesforce customers use multi-factor auth. And, you know, there's multi-factor auth in, in a lot of different places. The, some of them are probably harder than others to, to, you know, open up and stuff but at least not use a single password to log into the Salesforce ecosystem because that is the number one attack vector, like by a lot. So yeah, if, if I were to advise somebody, force all your users to, 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 to update your, your authentication. Just don't allow a password to be the, the only authenticator. There's been a lot of talk about password lists, like no password authentication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems a little bit ambiguous. Is there a couple different implementations of this? What is it? Like, how do you describe it from a high level? So, you know, a password is not a natural thing in the, in- should not, not have been a natural thing in the internet to begin with. And people think it is my fault, actually, that passwords exist in the way they exist today. So I accept the blame. The reason is inside of SSL, which is, any connection you connect to anything these days has an SSL connection. Inside of SSL, there is an option that allows the client, the user, to cryptographically prove themselves to the backend. But that was an option, was not actually made as a mandatory thing. The, the connection from the, the, the server back is mandatory to have the cryptographic support so that when you go to your bank, you actually do know that it's your bank and it's nobody imitating the bank sort of thing. But because, you know, we had no idea how to get billions of people to use cryptographic keys and manage that. So we said, you know, we'll just make it an option, let people use it. And that's how passwords started actually, believe it or not. Uh, The password idea started in IBM research in like the 60s. The idea of a password and was not for connecting to outside resources. It was actually done so that researchers inside of IBM when they come in the morning, they see the stuff they do. They're not trying to prevent others from seeing it. It's just, it's just a, it, was a, it was a productivity tool rather than a security tool. So we decided to use it as a security tool. There is no requirement that you have to have a password to log into your bank or to your e-commerce thing. It's not, it's not a part of the ecosystem. It's just needed because we needed... You know, the back end needs to know who their customers are. So, so you have to provision something. So there is, there is a number of different ways that the world now is providing that 
removes passwords completely. Some of them use biometrics, for example. Some of them use technology, actual, you know, cryptographic technology. Some of the, the, there's a number of different ways. The password is not a necessary part of, of this digital economy ecosystem. It actually is not. It is here just because. If you could go back uh, in time to when you uh, first started working, your first day of work at your first real big job, and you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? So I started at Hewlett-Packard Labs in 84 when I finished my PhD at Stanford. I was still mostly academic because I'm just a PhD graduate. I did not work in the industry before. Right now, I'm a true industry person. Focusing on connections with people would be my advice to myself. The thing I actually enjoy the most is talking to people because that's where you learn, that's where you accomplish things, that's where things really progress. The nature of me as an academic was, hey, I'm gonna invent the next new thing, I'm gonna hide myself in my room and you know go work some stuff out. That would have been the advice I would give myself because I've built a lot of good partnerships and, and, and relationships uh, in the industry over the years that I cherished quite a lot. What's the, the best advice for people who don't have a lot of relationships currently and, and they wanna go out there and, and work on what you just said, they want to go out there and, and get more relationships. How do they do that? People want to know them just as much as they want to know people is, is the thing that is sometimes hard to see. You know, a lot of people in the technical world are, are introverted just naturally. It's, you don't have to do anything about it. But that does not mean that, that these introverted people do not want to know others. They just, they just do not know how to go about it. You know, you start with, with many, just like accomplish any big thing in the world, you do baby steps. And you, and you see the successes and you see the failures and you learn from both as it turns out. Uh, and, and just just be very explicit about wanting to do that rather than feel comfortable. I like that. I It's one of the main drivers when I started this show was to just know more people. I yeah. never expected it to become my full-time job. I thought it would, you know, I'd get a VP of engineering at Salesforce or something, right? Some cool big company. You're welcome to apply. And and through this, it ended up you know becoming my full time job. But one of the things that was driving me was to know people, to be able to speak better, to be able to speak publicly, um, and, and just to get better at at that. And one of the things that actually scared me, to your point of baby steps, was I would fear like being on a stage in front of hundreds of people or thousands. Well, it turns out when you want to start, no one's going to let you on a stage in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> you, you start with a table, you start with a, like a small group, and then you work your way up and then it's a long process. And uh -huh. then, you know, you'll get an opportunity and then all of a sudden your group size will grow and you'll go from, you know, speaking to the table or the people that will listen to you to maybe a small room and then that'll happen for a year or so. And then you'll go up and then eventually you find yourself one day getting off the stage after talking to 5,000 people and you're like, oh, that's, yeah. this is kind of how it happens. You know, it's very slow. And I was in, actually trained professionally while at Netscape to do public speaking. Really? Yes. So, uh, and I, I committed to it. So did the company. Because uh, in these days, talking about internet security was an unknown topic. I mean, who would, who would actually understand what the heck that was 25 years ago? But somehow, because Netscape was selling things to companies, the company needed someone to actually speak about security. And sometimes in a smaller group, sometimes with a single customer, sometimes in a big audience. And the first time they threw me in, 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 in RSA to talk to like 5,000 people audience, Honestly, it was a scary event 
because it's not something that I've done before and I'm naturally introverted, just like a lot of technology people. But it was an awesome experience and, you know, I enjoyed it. I think the audience, the audience didn't kick me off, so I think it was okay. But it is actually a tough experience. It's not a simple thing that just happens by nature. When you talk to a big audience, it's actually very different. And that's what I was taught back then. It's completely different from talking to a small audience. You know, how do you focus? How do you look people in the eye? Who do you focus on? When you have 5,000 people, you're not going to see the people in the audience. It's like you're an entertainer at that point in time. Now, there's content that people want to get, so, so it's not like it's a random entertainment, but, but it's almost like being an entertainer. When you're presenting to 10 people in, an, in a room, you're actually talking about a subject that we had agreed on and there is an agenda and that kind of thing, which I still do quite a bit. What are some tips for speaking to a large audience? You know, what I, what I was taught, if, if your thought process got interrupted because we're all humans and you know our brain kind of does whatever it wants to do every once in a while always have a backup thing you want to say at any point in time so so when you get in the middle have a story and people love stories so have have a couple of stories in the back of your mind whenever you get a you know a lull in in your presentation just say one of these stories it actually works really well i see comics do this well i mean comics are entertainers it's not yeah. very different from speaking in front of five thousand people it's, it's, it's a different thing, but yes, yes. <laughs>